Let me invite you to join Mike and me in looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Open or scroll in your copy of God's Word or the copy that you'll find in the pew rack in front of you to one of my favorite books of the Bible, the fifth book of Moses, fifth book in the Old Testament as we begin a series that will last several weeks on this great portion of God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 5 begins the second of three sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel poised to enter the promised land. He reminds them of what was said in Exodus. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means second law, but this time it's adapted for a new generation and applied to a new situation. Deuteronomy 5 verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you, to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commands, commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. 
Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard that this people said to you, everything that they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Did you catch that? Verse 29 is my sermon text today. Oh, God says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it may go well with them and their children forever. Go tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me that I may give you all the commandments, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. In the speeches of Moses that we are going to attend to over the next several weeks, we are going to encounter a God who commands and blesses, warns and promises, corrects and instructs. And none of this is going to seem strange to people who read the Bible or go to church. We, we know a God who commands and blesses, who warns and promises and corrects and instructs. But do we know a God who yearns, wishes, longs for, aches for. A God who can say through his spokesman Moses, oh, oh, that my people might fear and obey me for their own good and for the good of their children. What emotion what yearning is in that little two-letter word, oh. Well, what does God yearn for? As we answer that question from Deuteronomy 5.29, we're going to hear five themes that Moses will circle back to again and again in this book. As I've studied Deuteronomy over the last several months, I've found eight to ten themes or topics that Moses, the preacher, comes back to repeatedly to emphasize the point. Uh, we met L Moses, the, the political leader and lawgiver, back in Exodus. In Deuteronomy, we meet Moses, the preacher. And preachers know that when people are listening, not reading, they need to hear the same main ideas again and again, and so we will hear recurring themes, five of which are all in this one verse. 
And the first is the heart. Oh, that the hearts, their hearts, the hearts of my people. And why is this not going? There we go. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear and obey me. God did not then, or now, or ever, want from people a merely external compliance with his requirements. He wanted and wants a relationship of the heart. Not interested in people who will merely keep the rules or say the right words. God wants our hearts. God yearns with all of his soul that we would love him wholeheartedly, that we would honor him wholeheartedly, that we would seek him wholeheartedly, that we would obey him wholeheartedly. A very imperfect and homey illustration might be this. Illinois law requires of drivers both seat belts and insurance. I keep both those laws, but I keep them differently. I keep the seatbelt law reluctantly. I don't like seatbelts. They're uncomfortable. The fact that the state makes them a requirement seems to me like nanny government, but I comply because I don't want to get a ticket. <laughs> and I don't want to put a stumbling block before my grandchildren. But I obey. On the other hand, I have car insurance and I obey that one wholeheartedly. I think it is wise, it's good that anybody who operates this kind of dangerous equipment protect themselves and property and other drivers from injury, from harm. And even though nobody is a fan of insurance, um, this is a law that I think is good and I, I obey it without qualification, with, with all my heart. God wants us to keep covenant with him to obey all of his laws wholeheartedly from the heart. Many Christians have an erroneous notion that Old Testament religion was merely a matter of externals, keeping the rules, the ceremonies, the rituals, saying the right words, and only when we come to the New Testament do we encounter a religion of the heart. Well, if I just describe you, read Deuteronomy. Moses uses the expression, all your heart and soul, more in Deuteronomy than any book of the Bible, including the New Testament. One third of all occurrences of that expression in the Bible are in Deuteronomy, with all your heart and soul. And some Christians say, of prominent Old Testament characters who are admirable, well, if only they had the relationship to God that I have now after Jesus has come. Or maybe what we ought to say is, if only I had the relationship with God that they had before Jesus came. Oh, if only I treasured God like David. If only I feared God like Isaiah. If only... I depended humbly on God like Naomi and Ruth. Oh, God says, if only their hearts were inclined to fear me.
when God gave his people the terms of the covenant, speaking out of a dark cloud on Sinai, or Horeb, from the mountain ablaze with fire, they were afraid. They told Moses, um, we're lucky to be alive. And we don't want to risk another encounter like that, so how about you talk to God and tell us what he says? And God said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be scary. I'll, uh, I'll tone down the volume next time and cut out the fire. And God said, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. The special effects were just so that you knew it was me talking and not some upstart God. They were afraid, and God said, oh, you don't need Moses to relay messages from me. Just come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and you and I will have a nice little chat. Hmm. No. When the people said, we're scared, God said, good. Verse 28, he told Moses, what the people say is good, which sets us up for verse 29. If only, God says, if only their hearts would always be inclined to fear me like fire. Fire warms, cooks, delights, attracts, we're drawn to it, but it also kills, and we have to respect it. I look across the page at chapter 4 and verse 32, where Moses is near the end of the first of his sermons in Deuteronomy, and he says, has anything so great as this ever happened or anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Please don't think that this is merely an old covenant emphasis which is discardable. We come to the New Testament and find a kinder and gentler God. It's the New Testament that says our God is a consuming fire. And fear him. Uh, Deuteronomy will also have a lot to say about love. That'll be our theme next week. Nine times in this book we read that God loves his people, and nine times we read that his people are to love him in return. And, and here's how one scholar brings together these themes that might seem to be intention, fear, and love. He writes, love prevents terror, fear prevents familiarity. Love prevents terror, fear prevents familiarity. Now I ask you, which danger do you think is more prevalent in the United States in the 21st century? Too many people terrified of God or too many people a little bit too chummy with God? It's our culture that came up with Buddy Christ. I don't know if you've seen that meme. It's our culture, including Christian culture that gives us lyrics like heaven meets earth with a sloppy wet kiss. But we, we preachers can't, much as we might like to, put all the blame for chummy Christianity on the songwriters. Sometimes preachers too 
uh, are guilty of softening the Bible's teaching on fearing God. Pastor Kevin Miller recalls visiting the Grand Canyon where you can stand at the south rim and peer 6,000 feet straight down. And every year, an average of four or five people die while visiting. Some deaths happen because, in one website's words, overly zealous photographic endeavors. I think this was written before the word selfies was a word. And still, he writes, the Grand Canyon is so beautiful that I was drawn to it. I had to see it, to get near it. I knew I couldn't do anything so foolish near the edge, but that same awesome beauty that caused me to fear drew me toward it. He continues, for most of my Christian life, preachers and writers have told me, you should respect God, of course, but you don't need to actually fear him. And that all sounded good. I believed that, and I told other people that. But the Bible disagrees. Isaiah prophesies, the Lord of hosts is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And Jesus says, fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. And so Pastor Miller continues, concludes, so when the Bible talks about fearing God, it means not just reverence, it also means the kind of fear I felt at the Grand Canyon, where I was drawn to amazing beauty, but also felt a realistic fear of the danger because people who act foolishly will die. A third recurring theme in Deuteronomy is obedience. Oh, God says that my people's hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands. The instruction to actually do what God says occurs 50 times in this book. Moses says to this generation ready to enter the land of promise, your parents had every reason to trust and obey God, but they failed, and so they died in the wilderness. Instead of inheriting the promised land as you are about to do, learn from their example. Don't repeat it. Here on the east side of Jordan, God is renewing his covenant with you. He chose you. He loved you. He rescued you. Now obey him. Now church, you and I are in a covenant relationship with God as well. It is the new covenant established by Jesus, and so the specific contents of the laws will differ somewhat. But the basic shape of the covenant is the same. God chose us, loved us, rescued us. <laughs> now obey him. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He said in Matthew chapter 12, Whoever does the will of my father is my brother or sister. And then there's his parting command at the end of Matthew's gospel, which is sometimes misquoted 
leading someone to speak of the great omission in the Great Commission. It is sometimes quoted this way. Jesus says, um, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. But what he actually said is, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I guess that's why John Stott defines preaching this way, expositing the text with such faithfulness and sensitivity that God's voice is heard and his people obey him. What marks you as one of God's people? How do you know that you're a Christ follower? Because you know the answers to some catechism? Or because you can remember the day and the hour and the location of your conversion experience? Or because on that occasion you made the right words come out of your mouth? Well, how about this test of whether you're one of God's people or not? Do you ever do anything simply because Jesus said to do it? Do you ever refrain from doing something simply because Jesus said don't? In the last days of the Civil War, the Confederate capital, Richmond, Virginia, fell to the Union Army, and uh, Abraham Lincoln insisted on visiting the vanquished city, even though people advised him against it. Well, even though nobody knew that he was coming, slaves recognized him immediately and thronged around him. He had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and now Lincoln's army had actually set them free. And according to one eyewitness, Lincoln spoke to the throng around him, my poor friends, you are free. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. Liberty is your birthright. But Lincoln warned them not to abuse their freedom. Quote, let the world see that you merit your freedom. Don't let your joy carry you into excess. Learn the laws and obey them. Not that much difference from the message Jesus proclaims to those he has liberated from sin slavery. You're free. <laughs> but now learn my laws and obey them. God yearns for his people to obey him for their own good. Oh, that my people would fear and obey me, that it might go well with them. Our creator knows best how the world will work. Our all-wise God knows what makes for human flourishing. And if we fear and obey him, it will go well with us. God has wired the world to reward virtue. So if you eat and drink in moderation, you're more likely to be healthy. If you discipline your finances, you're more likely to be prosperous. If you sow friendship, you'll reap friends. 
And it doesn't mean that a virtuous life is a problem-free life. Our experience and the wisdom literature of the Bible uh, show that that's naive. But generally speaking, even though individuals will be exceptions, a people who fear and obey God will prosper. The Psalms say, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And Deuteronomy also says, cursed is the nation that turns its back on the Lord. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, Moses scripts a responsive reading for Israel. Half are supposed to pronounce the blessings of covenant keeping, and the other half are supposed to pronounce the curses that come with forsaking the covenant. Now, Deuteronomy does not invite us to wrestle with the age-old problem of why do bad things happen to good people. Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomic strand of theology in the Old Testament invites us to trust and obey God for our own good and for the good of our children, that it might go well with them and with their children forever. God knows that if we wholeheartedly fear and obey him, it will go well with us and our kids and with their kids. <laughs> In my edition of the Bible, Deuteronomy takes up 35 pages. Children are mentioned in this book 37 times. It's a major theme. Children. Sometimes the text is talking about parents' responsibility to teach their children. Sometimes it's talking about the blessing that comes to children when their elders trust and obey God. When we keep covenant with God, we leave a heritage. And even after we're gone, the next generation enjoys benefits they didn't work for. Knowledge, modeled virtue, discipline, security, prosperity, opportunity. They didn't work for that. They'll have to work to maintain it and pass it on to their kids, but it's our heritage to them. The story of Jonathan Edwards is an example of what some sociologists call the five-generation rule. How parents raise their children, the love they give, the values they teach, the emotional environment they offer, the education they provide, influences not only their own children, but up to four generations that follow, either for good or evil. Now, many consider Jonathan Edwards the greatest theologian that America ever produced. He was a major voice in America's great awakenings in the 18th century. He was the author of weighty theological works that are still in print. What's less well known is um, Edwards' family legacy. Jonathan and his wife had 11 children. And for an hour before dinner each evening, Jonathan helped them with their school lessons, listened to their adventures of the day. At the conclusion, he prayed a prayer of blessing on each child. Every house, he said, should be a little church. In high demand as a speaker outside of his own congregation, when he traveled, he always took at least one of his kids with him. Well, a while back, a researcher studied 
1,400 of Jonathan Edwards' descendants. Traced 1,400 descendants of this great man. Here's what he found. 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers. That kind of spoils the story. (laughs) 100 missionaries, 30 judges, 66 physicians, including a medical school dean, 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, three mayors of large cities, three governors, a controller of the U.S. Treasury, and a U.S. vice president, not to mention the Edwards family in our church. Did you know that they were descendants of Jonathan Edwards? The argument could be made that Edwards' greatest legacy was not his preaching or his books, but his descendants. Praise the Lord, says Psalm 112. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants shall be mighty on the earth. When I was younger, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I, like many of my ministry student colleagues, tended to devalue the evangelism and discipling of children. We kind of took for granted children growing up in Christian homes. What really flipped our switches, the stories that we loved to tell, were about dramatic conversions of adults. Well, I'm older and wiser now. I know what a wonderful thing it is to grow up as one of the people of God. To be spared a lot of the heartache and brokenness of this world and to never know anything else but security and love and godliness. So God yearns for his people to pass on a heritage. We'll see that again in Deuteronomy. The great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon came home from a Sunday evening meeting once that his wife, uncharacteristically, had not accompanied him on. When he got home, she said, how'd it go? Were there any conversions? And he said, yeah, two and a half. She thought for a minute, she said, oh, okay, two adults and a child. He said, no, two children and an adult. The adult only has half of his life left. What's God saying to you this morning? Often in preaching, I try to articulate one central idea. I call it the big idea. It's a way of boiling down the text to one take home. This is what I think the passage is saying, and here's the way to word it. I I don't have to do that today. The big idea is the text. What God is saying Oh, oh, that you, my people, would from the whole heart be inclined to fear me and keep my commands always. That it may go well with you. 
and with your children forever. Father, thank you for this good word. Thank you that through this, the second sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy, you have opened up your heart to us and spoken in a mode that we don't often encounter in Scripture, that of a pleading, yearning God. And help us to take seriously what you've told us here. Help us by the enablement of your Spirit to live the vision that you cast in Deuteronomy 5.29. For your great name's sake, for our sake, and for the sake of our children, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.